There's my secretary. For those of you who came in late, welcome. And for those of you on Zoom who joined late, uh, we are in John chapter 11. So we're going to review because we're right in the middle of this story um, where we met Lazarus. And this is, uh, go to chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, this is a guy that's sick. He is a close, close friend of Jesus and his brother, uh, his, sorry, his two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're all very close to Jesus. They live in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. He's sick. Now, it just says he's sick. But what it really means is he's probably been sick for a little while, and he's taken a bad turn for the worst. Um, deathly ill is what I would call it. Um, so Mary uh, and Martha, the sisters, send word to Jesus. And um, in verse three, the Lord, the one you love is sick. And so he, Jesus hears this and says, the sickness will not end in death. Verse four, no, it's for the glory of God that, the God, that God's son may be glorified through it. That's the message he sends back to them. And also the disciples hear it. The sickness won't end in death. So verse five, John wants you to parenthetically know that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loves everybody, but he loved them in a special way. They're very close to him. Um, um, verse six is the most interesting verse in the whole chapter, which says, yet when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He didn't rush to their side, which is what they expected. Um, he stays so that he will, that Lazarus will die. And so you've got this conflict of the word love appearing twice already. He loves them. They love him. One you love is sick. And because of that love, he stays and doesn't go. So that's a conflict we'll have to resolve later on tonight. So verse seven, he says, let's go back to Judea. The disciples in the next few verses remind him how dangerous it is there because they almost tried to stone him a couple of times. Uh, the religious leaders, and it's only a couple miles from Jerusalem. It'd be dangerous to go there. Let's not go. But he tells them eventually that he's fallen asleep. Verse 11, Lazarus has, I'm going there to wake him up. It's a gentle way of talking about death. Uh, and Lazarus, the truth is, is dead. Verse 14, verse 15, for your sake, I was glad. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So Thomas says a bold thing, let's go that we may die with him. We talked about that last week. Anyway, Jesus makes the journey. It's about a day's journey. So by the time they get there, Lazarus has been dead in the grave for about four days. Um, let's see. Yeah, that's verse 17. Um, let's see. Many Jews had come, verse 19, to mourn his loss. Funerals, it wasn't uncommon that funerals would go from three days to as long as seven days of mourning. And so that's what's going on here. All kinds of wailing and mourning, and people would just stay there and mourn the loss and try to comfort the people that are closest to him, family members. Martha hears, verse 20, that Jesus is coming. She goes out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Generally, Martha is the go-getter, the busy one. Mary is the spiritual one. We'll talk about that in a little while. Martha says, verse 21, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. A lot of regret. But 
Verse 22, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. She is not expecting a resurrection. I'll show you that later in the chapter. Not expecting that. She just means my faith hasn't waned in you. I still believe in you. I still know when you ask God for something, he'll do it. But I'll show you later where in, in this chapter, you can see she's not expecting a resurrection. In fact, one of them comes right now. Because Jesus says, 20, verse 23, I know uh, your brother will rise again. And, Jesus, and she says, 24, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She means second coming of Jesus, resurrection of all believers. That's what we have to look forward to. She, she is sure about that, which is great. And she's right. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's another one of his I am statements. There are seven in the book of John. I am the, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, and calls him Lord. I believe you're the Christ, meaning Messiah, the son of God who was to come into the world. Mary has an amazing amount of knowledge. And uh, biblically speaking, she's like a scholar. She knows more than the Pharisees do. She might know more than the um, apostles do. The astounding thing about that is that in those days, rabbis would not teach women, um, but she, Jesus has taught her well. So, um, so after she says this, she goes back, verse 28, and gets her sis and says, Jesus is calling for you. And verse 29, when Mary hears, hears this, she gets up quickly and goes to him. Now, Jesus, verse 30, had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. Mary whispers in Martha's, uh, Martha whispers in Mary's ear and basically says, he's, he's asking for you because she wants some private time for Mary to be with Jesus without a huge throng of people wailing and crying and what have you. Um, so let's see, verse 31. Jesus hadn't yet entered the village, was still at the place where Mary, Martha had met him. That's 30. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up, verse 31, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there again. It would happen over and over, and people would tell stories about the deceased person and what have you. I told you last week that the Jews believed, and this is not biblical, but they believed it, that a person, if they died, their spirit and soul, the immaterial part of them, hung around for three days. This is the fourth day. After three days, fourth day, no hope. He's not going to come back. There's absolutely no hope. Death has such a finality to it, right? Except not with Christ. So, um, so I know that you're awake. Say amen. Well, that was pretty good. Those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. So I know you're, okay, two thumbs up from... <laughs> from Susan. Okay. Um, let's see. Verse 30. So that's the story. Um, Mary in verse 32 reaches where Jesus is, saw him and fell at his feet. Martha didn't do that. You remember? She just said to him, Lord, if you weren't here, you'd been here. My father, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary says the exact same thing. You get the feeling they were saying this to each other Ever since he died, you know what? If Jesus had been here, this wouldn't have happened had he, had he made it. And the question they're not asking, but you know what's on their mind is why? Why didn't he come immediately? Why didn't he run here? 
Why didn't he? And yet the other question is, his message was, this sickness is not unto death. It's for the glory of God. And he's dead. Was Jesus wrong? Are they wrong about Jesus? A lot of questions. And yet still a lot of faith from these ladies. So um, a lot of the commentators mentioned Mary being the more emotional one. She didn't leave the house at first. They think that this verse, I'm not going to try to do it, but verse 32, that almost every word is separated by a bunch of crying, a bunch of sobbing. You ever talk to somebody when they're crying and they can get one word and then they cry some more out. And then they think that's how it's said. I won't try to I'm not a very good actor. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That might've taken a minute and a half for her to say it. Okay. I want you to notice that she fell at his feet. Um, at the feet of somebody is proskuneo in Greek. It's the same idea as worship. It's the word for worship, bowing down, face in the dirt. Mary appears in the gospels, plural, three times. Every time Mary is with Jesus, She's at his feet. Once in Luke, she's at his feet just listening and learning from him. He's teaching. Do you remember that? Martha complains, hey, help, tell her to help me in the kitchen. I got nine things going, two microwaves. Come on, I need some help in the kitchen. And she's there just at his feet listening. And Jesus tells Martha, appreciate your making dinner, Martha. She chose the better thing here, learning from me. Here she is again at his feet. In the next chapter, she's going to be at his feet again, pouring very expensive perfume on his feet and drying the feet with her tears, with her, sorry, with her uh, hair. Anyway, that's the next chapter. We'll get there eventually. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Are they right? They are, right? They know he's got power over death. He's raised other people. They even probably know that he's raised people at a distance just saying, go your way, your servant lives. The guy gets home and they go, yeah, you got better, right? But they wanted him to come here and he didn't. But the text intimates that the reason he didn't was because he loves them. And you say, that was love? Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Okay, now these are really hard words to translate from Greek into English. So if you're reading a different version than I am, you might say, well, that's not what it says in mine. Some say uh, deeply moved. Some say he groaned in his spirit. The Greek word is enebrimasato, which um, has a number of meanings, but it usually refers to the sound that a horse makes when it snorts. And it is, it's not a grieving sound. It's almost an angry sound. So you say, well, Jesus is emotional here. He's about to cry. Why? Why is he sad? Why, is he, why would he cry? Why would he snort like a horse? Ugh. It's that kind of a thing. It's literally uh, an inarticulate or a, a sound you make that expresses emotion that's not a word like I just did. <sighs> you ever do that? People understand what that means kind of thing. Um, so he's deeply moved. He groaned in his spirit. Um, it's an outrage. The other word is 
ataroxin, which is emotional turmoil. Okay, so it's two things he's feeling. Um, the Greeks had their own gods. Okay, this is in a Greek culture. Greek is the main language. I know the Romans have taken over, but the Greek gods, the primary characteristic of them was in Greek, apatheia, which sounds like apathy, meaning what? No emotion, no feelings, passionless. The gods they believed in would never cry or would never be concerned about anybody's welfare. They're just so far above us. Not so. The God of the universe is there in flesh, and he's not only emotional and sad, um, but he's also extremely angry. What's he angry at? Who's he angry at? Nobody there. I think he's angry because he's faced, come face to face with what sin has done to planet Earth. Death, disease, injury, sickness, sadness. This was never the plan of God. It was, was never supposed to be in the Garden of Eden, and yet God knew it all along, of course. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we've been dying and getting sick ever since. Walter Martin used to say the death rate is still one per person. We're all going to make it, right? Um, so he's, he's sort of weeping right along with them. The powerful, all-powerful creator of the universe is weeping. It's a beautiful picture. If you think God is distant and just some guy with a billy club that when you sin, he hits you on the head and says, stop doing that, you got the wrong God. First John says God is love. Now, he's a lot more than that. He's justice as well. He's a very just and fair God, very powerful, very creative, but he's loving here. It's a beautiful picture. Um, all the misery, all the, the sadness from death and sin, he's seeing it, but he's also surrounded by a bunch of people that don't believe, and he's sad about that as well, which is also from the Garden of Eden forward. So, um, he has snorted with just anguish. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows. He cries with us, right? Do you know that when you're sad, when you're crying, and you cry out to God, he, he may be crying in heaven with you. Christ may be crying sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's a beautiful picture um, to remember. Um, he sees our tears. He's touched by them. He remembers our tears. And if that was all it was, you would go, well, at least he cares. But on the cross, he did something to dry our tears. It's interesting that tears are mentioned when the description in um, Revelation 21 and 22 of the eternal kingdom of heaven, there's no more crying, no more tears, no more mourning or sickness or death. The old order has passed away. The new things have come. Um, Romans 12, 15 says for you and me that we are to rejoice with them that rejoice, weep with them that weep, be empathetic. It's a beautiful picture as well. Okay. Um, let's see, keep your finger here and go two books to the right to Romans eight. I like to do this to keep you awake. Are you still awake? Okay. Romans chapter eight and go to verse 22. I think it is. Because Jesus just groaned in his spirit, okay? Because the world isn't right as long as there's sin and death, and he knows it. Romans 8, 22, we know that the whole creation 
has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we were saved. Um, skip down to 26. In the same way, listen to this. Who else is groaning? The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes, that means praise, for us with groans that cannot be expressed by words. Go back to John. God cares about your anguish, your sorrow, your misery. So um, he reaches that place. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And she's crying. Notice verse 33 gives you the hint of what Jesus is feeling. When he saw her weeping, somebody you love. You ever cried when you see somebody you love crying and you don't even know why they're crying, but you love them so much that you start getting choked up, right? This happens more as you get older, some of you who are younger than me, uh, like you, Winston. Uh, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, a whole crowd of weeping people, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. So he asks in 34, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord, they replied. Now, he's the all-knowing, omnipotent one. I think he knows. But he asks, where have you laid him? Where, in other words, where have you buried him? Now, the tombs in that part of the world were in the hillsides that were limestone, rock, which is a soft stone, and they would cut out little caves. Usually, um, that's where the person would be buried. You wouldn't do a cave that would be for one, usually. You would do a cave that was big enough with shelves to put several bodies in there for the whole family tomb kind of thing. So... Mary, Martha, Lazarus, that's three. They're all single. We don't know why. Maybe their spouses have already died. We don't know. Maybe their parents are in there, but there's room for Lazarus. And so that's where they put him. Um, let's see, before we get to 35, which is such an interesting verse. Yeah, let's go to 35. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. If you ever asked that in a trivia contest, Jesus wept. That's it. I think it's beautiful, especially in light of what I said earlier, the Greek gods are above emotion and all of that. Um, the same is true, by the way, for Allah in Islam, in the Muslim faith. God would never cry. It would sh be showing weakness. He's a warrior. Jesus wept. It's absolutely a, a beautiful thing. So um, <clears throat> now there's a reaction from the Jews. That's the people from that area that are Jewish, especially Israel, uh, especially, sorry, Jerusalem. Some of the Jews then said, see how he loved him. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So are they right? Is that why he's crying? Because he loved him. Partially that's right. But it's also because of the ravages of sin. He may also be seeing himself in Lazarus because he's going to die within you know, several weeks. Uh, that's coming very quickly in the Gospel of John. Um, the last week of Jesus's life starts next chapter, which is 12. And there's 
more than 20 chapters. So um, the belief that he's surrounded by represents the whole country of Israel, which for the most part just doesn't get it and doesn't believe in their uh, Messiah. So they say, see how he loved him. And then in a way, verse 37, they're rephrasing what Mary and Martha already said. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But they have a little less faith, verse 37. Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Whenever there's a question in the Bible, I like to answer it. Could he have? Sure, right? From where he was at a distance, could have said the word, thought the thought, he would have been well. But he let him die purposely. He waited two days, then a day's journey. That's three days, but there was already a day's journey for the messenger to get there. That's the four days. Probably Lazarus died as soon as the messenger left or soon thereafter. So see how he loved him, verse 36. I want you to, in your margin, if you write in your Bible, write in, see how he loved me. Meaning you, not me. See how he loved us. The evidence that he loved is that he cried. That's what they think. The greatest act of love in the history of the universe happens on the cross. Jesus says so. Greater, greater love than this hath no man that he lay down his life for his friends. By the way, the next verse is, you're my friends if you do what I command you. Obedience is so tied in with love, you can't separate the two. The greatest act of love ever is Jesus on the cross dying for you and me, laying down his life. The greatest travesty in the history of humanity is also the cross. It's the worst thing that ever happened. I know there's been slaughter of children and the creator of the universe, all good, sinless, gets murdered by the government and his own people yell, crucify him right? It's the worst thing and the best thing, a paradox. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. They would lay a stone, a round stone, roll it downhill into the entrance to keep animals out, curious people out, grave robbers in case there's anything valuable in there. It's nobody's business. Also for the Jews, two miles from Jerusalem, you can't be near a dead body or you can't celebrate Jewish uh, festivals. You can't worship. You're unclean if you touched a dead body. So you wouldn't leave the cave entrance open so that you wouldn't have two kids or three kids playing going, oh, look, a cave. They go in there and they're with a dead body. Now they can't worship. They would be considered unclean for seven days. Um, so the claims so far in this book of John about Jesus. Remember, we've been saying the overarching theme is, who is Jesus? The claims so far are that he's God, John 1, 1 and elsewhere. He's the creator. That's all in the first chapter. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, still first chapter. The one who comes down from God, the one who will return to God, the only means to being born again, the only one. Um, he is the one who takes sin away. He, uh, let's see, is the Messiah. He, by, by the way, he tells that to a Samaritan woman in chapter four, that he's the Messiah. In chapter five, he says he does the works of God. He 
which is his father. He's equal with God, his father. Chapter six, he feeds the huge multitude with loaves and fish um, and calls himself the bread of life. Those who eat the bread of life won't die. He has the authority, he says in chapter five, to raise, sorry, chapter six and five, to raise the dead. Chapter eight, he says, anyone who believes him and keeps his word will never see death, calls himself the I am, which is the divine name of God in chapter eight as well. In chapter 10, he tells us he gives his sheep eternal life and no one can take the eternal life away from them. And he says he has the power to lay down his life and take it up again. All those things he's about in one miracle to put them all together and prove it by raising Lazarus from the dead. So the tension's building. I don't know if you can feel it, but I can. Um, so he's got even more emotion in verse 38. Uh, and in a sense, what he's about to see is a dress rehearsal for his own resurrection. So they're there. There's a huge crowd of mourners there, family, friends, people from Jerusalem, business associates, whoever it may be. And then... He says it, verse 39, take away the stone, he said. Very odd request. And they may be thinking, does he want one last look at Lazarus? Does he want to pay his respects in closer proximity? Isn't he going to be unclean if he goes in there? It's an odd request to take away the stone. Now, if Martha believes there's going to be a resurrection, she would say, yay, he's going to do it. Get the stone, boys. Watch. Take away the stone, he said, verse 39. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there's a bad odor. For he's been there four days. Anybody have King James here in this room? It says, he stinketh. Don't you love that? I, I love that. It's so quaint. Oh, Lord, by now, he stinketh right? As if that dresses up the word stink, you know, he's going to smell by now. This is in science, those of you who are scientists, called the second law of thermodynamics, which is a fancy word for entropy, which is a fancy word for the fact that everything runs downhill. You get a perfectly good apple, cut it in half, leave it on your counter for a week, and then ask yourself, do I want to eat this now? It doesn't look the same, does it? It'll turn brown in a matter of minutes, if not hours, right? Leave cheese on the counter for two weeks. Ugh, everybody's going, yeah. Everything runs downhill. Evolution, by the way, says everything runs uphill. Things get more and more complicated by themselves and better and better. Everything runs downhill. The whole universe, the second law of thermodynamics says, is dying of a heat loss right? Light a candle. It won't be there forever. It won't get brighter and brighter. It'll eventually burn out, as will the sun, every other star you see in the sky. Everything's running downhill. I don't mean to bum you out. That's all the curse of Adam and Eve, chapter three of Genesis. Jesus comes to reverse that curse. He's going to demonstrate it by raising a guy who stinketh. Can we say stinketh? I think you all should use that word. How was the Bible study? Oh, he stinketh. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. You, you can say that about me. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, don't you love that? She's not expecting 
a, a resurrection. She's saying, oh, don't roll the stone away. It's, it's not going to be pretty. He stinketh. I just love that. Okay. Um, by this time, this time there's a bad order. He's already started decomposing. The truth is the decomposition starts on day one and gets worse and worse and worse. Don't make me draw you a picture, but it's not pretty. Verse 40, then Jesus said, oh, okay, leave the stone there. See you later. And he left. No. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. He says this probably eyes open, hands raised, looking up. That was the normal posture of prayer, not sitting, not kneeling. You would kneel sometimes for prayer. Usually you would pray standing up, hands up, eyes up, eyes open. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of that verse. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you, will, you would see the glory of God? Now, does Jesus need her to believe to pull this miracle off? No. But he doesn't want her to miss the blessing. Believe ahead of time so that when I do this, you'll see the glory. Otherwise, you're just going to be shocked and be concentrating on the dead guy with a thing wrapped around his face and all wrapped up like a like a loosely wrapped mummy. He wants her to believe so that she can see the glory of God. Last week, we said this story is the intersection of three strange things that don't seem related, death, love, and the glory of God. He's going to bring all three of those together in this story in a pretty amazing way. Didn't I tell you, if you believe You'll see the glory of God. By the way, she'll see the glory of Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, and the glory of God the Father. That's what he said at the beginning. Uh, look at verse 4 again. The sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Both the Father and the Son are going to get glorified. He says, don't miss the blessing. By the way, those that don't believe, that question it, they miss seeing the glory. In the Old Testament, Moses, very boldly, if you remember, asks God, show me your glory. I want to see it. Do you remember that? It's a weird story. And God says, you can't see my face, but I'll hide you in this cleft in the rock and you'll see my, see me from behind, basically my back parts almost. And in that story, when he is revealed, um, his glory is seen, and what's mentioned there is his mercy, goodness, and compassion. You see all three here. Mercy, goodness, and compassion. What's glory, you ask? The excellence, the holiness, that we already said mercy, goodness, the brightness, the beauty, the perfection of who and what Jesus is and who and what God is. The same glory they share. John 17, he talks about that. He tells his father, asks his father, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was. So he wants her to get the full-on miracle. Believe now so you'll see the glory of what's about to happen. Amazingly, in a step of faith, because she would be the one, Mary and Martha would be the ones to say, okay, move the stone. She must have given the order because verse, uh, whatever that is, 41 says, 
So they took away the stone. I think the wind maybe is blowing a little. You can hear the breeze because you can't hear anything else. I think the minute the stone gets removed, everybody's just watching silently. Like, what is he going to do now? I think it's very, very tense. Um, so then he does this little thing for their benefit, 42. Sorry, end of 41. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you, notice past tense, have heard me. Meaning he already talked to the Father about this, right? He already prayed. Why did God the Father hear the Son? Because of this one prayer? No, because of a history of him praying every day, sometimes for four hours, sometimes all night, constantly spiritual breathing, some people call it, where you're just praying all day. You're with the checker at the grocery store and you say, Lord, open a door where I can pray to this woman. She looks very down and to, in your mind at constantly communicating with God, that's Christ. He was always doing that. So it wasn't unusual, but he wants them to know, I prayed to the father and the father is involved in this. I don't want you to miss it. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. He wants there to be a connection between, in their minds, between God the Father and God the Son and the miracle that's about to ensue, what they're about to see. So in typical John fashion, there's not a lot of fanfare or description. Um, so yeah, he asks them to take a step of faith, roll away the stone. And they do, um, pretty amazingly. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Martha, remember, had said earlier, last week we talked about it. She said to him, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I still know that whatever you ask of him, God will give you. So maybe she's starting to think, I thank you that you heard me. What is he going to do? I don't think anybody's expecting a resurrection. In the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha raised people from the dead. But if you read those accounts, it's not like this. Jesus does it with two words, and he could have done it with a thought, by the way. He wants them to connect the loud voice, his voice, the grave, the guys coming out. Elijah and Elisha, it's a very elaborate process uh, and procedure when they raise somebody. Um, so verse 43, when he had said this, right after he said 41 and 42, Jesus called in a loud voice, can be translated a shout, Lazarus, come forth. Okay, three words. Depends which translation you have. Um, I'm not good at math. Um, Lazarus, come forth. Many scholars have pointed out, this is maybe splitting hairs, maybe this is way off, but I'm going to throw it out there. Had he not specified just Lazarus, maybe tombs everywhere would have had people going, yay, Night of the Living Dead, right? Movie would have been filmed right then and there. He specifies, I just want Lazarus, the rest of you stay where you are. Pretty amazing. Lazarus, come out is what it means. Come forth, come out. Let me take you inside the, temp the, the grave, okay? Before the stones rolled, okay? If you were a fly on the wall in there, 
and there probably were flies. It's totally dark in there, right? Probably cooler in there, a little creepy, maybe a lot creepy, right? Dead, maybe more than one dead body. And imagine the stone gets rolled away and now you, there's light coming in. It's still dead as a doornail in there. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And if you're watching Lazarus's body in your mind's eye, his eyes open. If you've got medical equipment hooked up to him and EKG and brainwaves equipment, like you boot up your computer and for a second you're looking as nothing's happening and all of a sudden it's starting to make sounds and it's flashing and he's waking up, which is a miracle. Let's not miss that for obvious reasons. He was dead, really dead. The other two people that he raises from the dead are freshly dead. They're still dead. I'm not minimizing those miracles. This guy is really dead four days. Eyes open, starts breathing. Lazarus must be thinking, wow, right? Like, hmm. He heard the voice of Jesus. Um, okay, the way they would, uh, well, let's wait there. Let's go to John 5 for a quick second. So just a few, five or six or seven pages to the left. Turn back to John 5 from John 11. John 5, we want verse 20. Eight and following Jesus talking 528 John 528 do not be amazed at this Jesus says for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out those who have done good will rise to live those who have done evil will rise to be condemned he's talking about the end of the world the second coming what Martha said I know he'll rise at the resurrection, end of time. She wasn't wrong. He's confirming that here. Um, let's see. Go back to uh, stay in chapter five. Uh, go to verse 25 now. Same chapter five. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and now has come. Okay. This is months before what we're reading in chapter 11. He says, a time's coming. He spoke about that in a second. And he also has the audacity to say, and the time has come, verse 25. Well, what time has come, Jesus? When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I believe that verse is talking about people that hear the gospel who are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1 hear it and are born again. They hear the voice. You say, you mean the audible voice? No, because they can all hear him. Some people hear him and go, ah, he's a liar. He's a, he's a demon-possessed, crazy man. He's an imposter. He's a devil himself. But some hear it like you did, like I did, and say, wow, there's something to this, right? Go back to chapter 11 with me now. You say, hurry up and get to it, waiting for him to rise. I know, I'm with you. <laughs> so he says, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. 
no pomp, no circumstance, no incantations, no watch this, everybody. But he shouts it in a loud voice because he wants them to connect the resurrection, which is, by the way, literally a resuscitation, not a resurrection. They're going to take the grave clothes off him. And guess what? He's going to need them again because he's going to die. Maybe five years, two years, 20 years later, he's going to die again. Jesus, when he rises, is a resurrection. He leaves the grave clothes. He will never need those again. And by the way, when you rise from the dead, neither will you ever. Okay. Typically, when they buried a corpse, okay, they would put spices and perfume on it, depending on how wealthy the family was. We have reason to believe this family is fairly wealthy. I'll show you why in chapter 12. Um, they're going to blow somewhere between forty and $60,000 on a bottle of perfume about this big that she's going to pour on Jesus. It's a lot of money. Um, I'm adjusting for inflation, obviously. Um, let's see. That, so they would, um, let's see, they would put a sheet. They put the body on a long sheet. If you, not a bed sheet type thing. I mean, more narrow but twice as long as the body. So I'm six foot two and a little, a little taller than that. You would need about a 12 and a half foot sheet. You would lay my feet at one end of it and lay me on it. So the rest of it is all behind me now. And then they would pull the rest of it over the body. If you've seen the Shroud of Turin, it's an image of back and front. Have you ever noticed that? Of, of a human body. Am I saying that's Jesus's burial cloth? I don't know. Anyway. Um, my wife and I saw a reproduction of exact reproduction of it in Santa Cruz, believe it or not. Anyway, um, so they would wrap that sheet around him and then they would tie the, uh, wrap the legs together in strips of linen, wrap the arms to the body and put a separate cloth over the face of the body. They did not embalm. They did not um, do what the Egyptians did, which is wrap them so tight that there'd be no way he could get out or walk or do any of that. Um, by the way, there are a few scholars that think it's a miracle that he was able to walk out of there. Um, not only from being dead, but just being wrapped up. Maybe he waddled. I don't know what he did, but it, John just very glibly says the dead man came out, hands and feet wrapped with the strips of linen and a cloth around his face. So is the cloth still around his face? It sounds like it is. Like he just sort of made his way out and he really couldn't see where he was going, but here he comes. Can you hear the gasps of the crowd now? Right? Like, wow. There he is. With a cloth over his face, there may be people that are saying, how do we know it's him? Could be an imposter. They're about to undress, not undress, but take that stuff off of him. Notice Jesus says, take off the grave clothes, which are impeding his movement, right? And let him go. He's in a way, he's in bondage in those grave clothes. Um, okay, I'm leading up to something, but I I'm, I'm, want to read the notes first. Um, this man, Lazarus, was dead. But somehow he heard the word from Jesus's mouth. He heard Jesus's voice. And it wasn't a request. It was a command, right? Lazarus, come forth. It's a command. Could Lazarus have said no? I don't think so, right? 
there are stories, and I don't know whether they're true or not, of all kinds of people that have had near-death experiences, right? They died, and then they came back. Almost always what you read is, I didn't even want to come back, right? It was so peaceful where I went kind of thing. I'm not putting a lot of stock in those, but in any case, we have her out of the grave, but we've got a lot to talk about. Let's take our two-minute break now. Don't go away. I'll be right back. I'm just going to turn my screen and mic off. I'll be out back in two minutes. Gosh, look at that. Oh, sorry about that. Thank you uh, to the Lucich family. I had the camera on and the recording on and not, and I hit the microphone, but it didn't go on. So you didn't hear a thing I said. Yeah, somebody's calling me now. Look, the reason Ken is calling me is the microphone was off. It's now on. Sorry about that. Um, what somebody brought up, let me repeat it. Those of you that are here heard it because I wasn't muted, but I was muted. I apologize. Those of you that are on there thinking, how stupid is he? Pretty stupid. I hit the mic and it didn't go off. It didn't go back on. Okay. Hopefully you can wave if you can hear me now. Okay. Beautiful. Somebody asked me during the break, where was Lazarus? What did he see? And we're not told because God doesn't want us to know or it would be in here. Paul was um, taken to the third heaven, saw things a man's not permitted to see, it says in one of the Corinthian books. The other thing we mentioned uh, while the host was muted was that he was definitely, Lazarus was, decomposing um, and stinketh, right? And Jesus undid all that and made him new and all that, all those cells came back to life, good as new. I don't think he stinketh when they took the wrapping off him. Uh, anyway, sorry about the microphone thing. Um, the dead man came out, feet and hands wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. 
And Jesus instantly says, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I want you to notice this is a miracle. We already said that. Who did it? God did it through Jesus Christ. With me so far? But I want you to notice he doesn't do it single-handedly. You say, what do you mean? Could Jesus have snapped his fingers and the stone rolled away? Yes. He made human beings participate in the miracle. Graciously, he allows us to do that, to witness to somebody who says, I don't want anything to do with this Jesus. But after weeks of talking to him and the Holy Spirit working on their heart, they say, I, I want to hear more about this. And, you know, the tears and all that. He allows them to do the other stuff. He doesn't take the grave clothes off. I want you guys to do it so you'll never forget it. We'll be involved in a, in a miracle. So he has them take the grave clothes off and let him go, which sort of implies a, that's what you say about a prisoner, right? He's been a prisoner of death. As a matter of fact, every human being that has ever lived has been a prisoner of death because we may not think about it a lot, but everybody hearing the sound of my voice, especially when the mic is on, uh, is going to die. We're all going to die at some point. We're sort of have that hanging over our heads. But in Christianity, oh, death, where is your sting? You just saw it. This is a picture that has a past, a present, and a future aspect. You say, how so? I'm glad you asked. Past tense for you and I today, in the past, Jesus raised Lazarus. In the past, Jesus himself rose from the dead bodily in a way that he will never die again. In the future, you and your loved ones who have died will also do what Lazarus did, came out of the grave, but not with a body that'll die again, a, a resurrected, glorified uh, body. Pretty amazing thing. Okay, so I don't want to sell this too hard, but we said he was in the dark, right? He was dead. Um, I got a, a four, three or four page letter today from somebody I'm close to who disagrees, and God bless her, she has every right to, with what I'm about to say. And it might be stretching it a little. I'm going to say that the, and you've heard me say this before, that this whole Lazarus story is a picture, not only of Jesus's power over death and resurrection, he's the resurrection and the life. Is that the main point? Absolutely it is. But many scholars have pointed out that Lazarus is a picture of you and me before we were saved. Let me explain. The unsaved me stunk in God's nostrils, okay? Sinner, no salvation, dead in my trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. Unclean, born in sin, lived in rebellion, in the dark. That's where he was, right? Cold, uh, no communication with God, with other dead people, no spiritual life dead in sins, isolated, all wrapped up in guilt and sin, inhibited but by what we could do. We heard his voice, Joe, come to me. Voice, Joyce, Judy, come to me. And we responded, came out of the grave. The process of unwrapping us a while and may still be occurring, right? Um, all to God's glory. 
We come out of the darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. And the verse from John 5 I read you, the time is now coming and now is. Dead people hear his voice and come to life. Love made Jesus wait so they could see the greater glory of God through, of all things, a death. Same thing for the cross. The love of Christ is what caused the, cr the cross, his death, and brought the greatest glory to him. Um, we already talked about past, present, and future. I'm just reading notes here, sorry. Um, so in a way, I won't sell it too hard, but Lazarus is you. Lazarus is me in our unsaved state. He called your name. Many scholars believe that at the second coming or the rapture, whatever you want to call it, if you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, we, we won't go into that all, uh, all that now. Many people believe that those in the graves will hear Jesus' voice just like this call their name to come forth. If you know anything about end times, you know that there is not one resurrection. There's a resurrection of the believers first. At the end of the millennium, uh, Revelation 20, there's another resurrection that's not as pleasant. It's the resurrection of the unbelievers. Remember, he said some will rise to reward and glory. Some will rise to condemnation and judgment. That's them. Two separate resurrections. I just wanted to throw that in. They take away the stone. Lazarus comes out. You know they got to be asking Lazarus, what did you see? It's not recorded here. Maybe it's not important. If you're asking that, you're missing the point. The point is Jesus has total power over man's big enemy, which is death. The other enemy, Satan, he's got power over that as well. So I want you to see this resurrection for what it is. And I want you to see the reactions that are shocking in how diverse they are. Um, let's see. Um, this is a miracle that's going to convince some people and it's not going to convince others. Watch. Um, take off the grave clothes and let him go. That's all. The story's really over at this point. Now it's just reactions. Verse 45, therefore, because of what just happened, a resurrection from the dead by a man speaking. Therefore, many of the Jews, 45, had come, who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. That's good, isn't it? Yes. Although a lot of commentaries mention that if you believe because you saw a miracle, that's good. But that's not as good as the person that believes without seeing anything fantastic. You saw a miracle, praise God. Most people don't. They come to faith in Jesus. They see their own sin because the Holy Spirit's convicting them, drawing them to himself, and they believe. Miracle faith is better than no faith at all, but it should be backed up by you read the scriptures and you believe and you act, act on it, if you will. Um, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit believed in him. This did it. Verse 46. But... Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. When I was a kid, we called this tattling, right? Did your sister or brother ever say, I'm telling mom, I'm telling dad. And you're like, no, don't. That's what they're doing. They know that the Pharisees have put the word out, the Jewish leaders, tell us what Jesus is doing, where he is. 
they're telling on him, basically. They go tell the religious leaders what Jesus had done, as if it's some kind of a crime. He raises a dead man. It's so amazing to me. Then, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's a, this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Okay, what's going on here? This is an emergency meeting. What's the Sanhedrin, you ask? Okay, there are two religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They tend to be the more powerful, wealthy ones. And then there's the Pharisees more strict by the word of God. Sadducees only believe in the first five books of Moses. Pharisees believe the whole Old Testament Jewish Bible. Most of the Sanhedrin is Sadducees. What's the Sanhedrin? It's a special class of 70 plus one. The high priest is the one. They are what we would call in America, a sort of a cross between the Supreme Court and the Senate. Okay. The ruling elders, the main ones, um, the Sanhedrin. Um, let's see. So they're going to call an emergency meeting when they hear what Jesus did because they probably want to pray and receive Jesus as their savior. They're so impressed with his power. Eh, wrong. What are we accomplishing? They asked end of verse 47. Here is this man performing what? Many signs, miracles. Did you catch that? They're not denying earlier. They had asked, show us a sign so that we can believe. Remember that? Happens more than once in the Gospels. Now they're acknowledging it. Here's this guy performing miracles. In the vernacular of teenagers today, I would say, hello. Can you not? Hello. Right? He's performing. Did you notice what you said? Miracles. Aren't you interested in investigating this guy? Here's this man performing many signs. They're admitting it. Okay. Here's their logic. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. By the way, that's not true. Because the gospel has spread around the world. And the majority of people that hear the gospel, I got news for you, don't believe it. Right? Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it broad is the way that leads to destruction. Most people on planet Earth, sadly, are not saved and won't be saved. Right? The majority of the population of planet Earth will go to hell. A small number, I don't know how small, but it's not that small. There's supposed to be 2.5 billion with a B Christians on planet Earth right now. That's a lot, but there's seven and a half billion or so people total. So you can see it's like a third. It's a smaller number. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And what will the result be? Wouldn't that be awesome if everyone believed in him? You wouldn't have to lock your doors. Churches would be having to build giant stadium buildings, right? No, you know what will happen? If everyone believes in him, then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. Really, it literally reads our place and our nation. They think the Romans will hear, oh, the Jews have their own king, not Caesar, huh? Send a battalion down there and wipe them out. 
They think Jesus is so bad for human society that if everyone believes in him, the Romans will get wind of it, some other king, Jesus, and they will come and take their country over and tear it apart and remove us righteous Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees from our place of prestige and position and power and popularity. And we don't want that now, do we? It's pretty crazy, isn't it? The same miracle is presented to two groups of people. Some of them go, come on, what more proof do we, this is the guy, I believe. Others go, you know, they're about to say it, we got to kill this guy. Think of how crazy that is. Why? What did he do? He raised a guy from the dead. It's, it's absolutely insane. Unbelief is. What are we accomplishing? Answer, nothing. You guys are phony law, you know, keeping um, legalists who really are just in it for the money and the prestige. That's the answer to that question. If we let them go on like this, everyone will believe. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple, our place, and our nation. I got news for you. The Romans did come and take away their temple and their city and their nation. They killed somewhere between half a million and a million Jews, sold a bunch into slavery, and the rest were dispersed around the world. And then that was the end of Israel as a nation until 1948. It was the end to this day of real orthodox Judaism. You say, no, no, there's synagogues in Fresno and Los Angeles and all around the world. Yes, I know. They don't have a high priest. They don't have the temple. They're not doing any sacrifices for sin. They're not keeping their own law. I can dig that they're getting together and meeting and remembering, I guess. They haven't had a temple for 2,000 years. They haven't had a high priest for 2,000 years. Why? Because Jesus wrote, this is the whole book of Hebrews in a sentence or two. Jesus is the ultimate high priest, the ultimate temple. They haven't had a sacrifice of a Passover lamb. He's the ultimate sacrifice of the Passover lamb. They don't have the Ten Commandments. He fulfilled the Ten Commandments. Everything Judaism was is fulfilled in the Jewish Messiah. And they missed it. Most of them did the first time around. Um, okay, so... Let's read what else they say, and then we'll talk about it some more. Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, okay? That is as impolite as it sounds, okay? It's like saying, you bunch of airheads, you're so stupid, okay? He has a reputation, this guy, by the way, for being pretty arrogant. Caiaphas was high priest then. He got the job because of, wait for it, who he married. Really? Yes, he's the son-in-law of Annas, A-N-N-A-S, who was the high priest. And then because of some corruption, the Romans said, okay, you're done. And in 18 AD, which is about 12 years from 14 years, somewhere in there from when this is taking place, in 18 AD, they made his, he said, well, let my son-in-law be the guy. So Caiaphas is his son-in-law. Annas is still around. You're going to see him later in the chapters of John. He still has a lot of power, but Caiaphas, a younger man, is the high priest. And he's arrogant. You bunch of airheads, you know nothing at all, verse 49. Verse 50. Look at how ironic this is. Double meaning. You do not realize, verse 50, that it is better, it is expedient 
for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. What he means is, if that's true, what the others were saying, if Jesus gains more and more popularity, he's going to be called the king. They were already trying to make him king in chapter six. And the result will be the Romans will go, you're not having another king. And they'll come and take our nation over. He thinks it would be better to save the nation, to save our position in the temple if we just kill this guy right? It's better. Look at it again. There's such irony here. You do not realize it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. In other words, to save Israel, Jesus must die, right? But we see it post-cross 2020 vision, looking backward, that the only way people get saved, not only Israel, not only the nation, is if Jesus dies. He's right. He doesn't understand that he's right, but he's right. Look at it again. It's better for you that one man die for the people. He's, he's giving a lesson on substitutionary atonement, meaning one guy dying on the cross as the sacrifice for all. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist meant it the right way. He means it for evil. God means it for good. Um, Caiaphas, the high priest. It's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Verse 51. He did not say this on his own. Does he know this? No. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Wait, wait, wait prophesy usually it's the thus saith the lord you know zechariah says it or jeremiah says it or ezekiel or isaiah or whatever you saying god used this evil guy as a prophet yes one sentence it's absolutely incredible but it shouldn't surprise you because god used an evil um, emperor named cyrus to prophesy he used a false prophet named balaam and wait for it, he used the mouth of Balaam's jackass to speak prophecy. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? He can use anybody. There's no limit to what he can do. He means one thing that I pointed out. God means it a whole nother way. It's better that one man die than the whole nation perish. They need the Messiah. He is the Messiah. It's better that he dies because then there's a payment for sin. Now we can have fellowship with God again and one day come out of the graves just like Lazarus does. So the ironic thing is, you know the end of the story. They do kill him, and they do lose their nation and their place. The temple, there, there's no more Pharisees, Sadducees on the earth, Sanhedrin, none. They haven't had a sacrifice in 2,000 years because God's sacrifice, just about, because God's sacrifice already took place. Once for all, Hebrews says, sacrifice for sin. They do lose the nation. They got it back in 48, 1948, meaning getting closer to the end times because that was prophesied. So when are the end times? Now. We're closer now than ever. When's it going to happen? We're closer now than ever. I don't know, right? Um, they're going to kill an innocent man. They're trying to think logically, but not morally. Because if they really, if somebody spoke up, they would say, wait a minute. We're going to kill this guy? What did he do that deserves death? What capital crime did he do? 
Remember the trials? There's seven trials. They can never figure it out what he did. They just, we got to kill him. But you know what? Ultimately, God is the one that makes all this happen. God wants him to die. And he wants him to die on the day on Passover when they're slaughtering lambs at the same time. So that the Jews hopefully will make the connection. Oh, Passover lamb for the sins of the... Jesus on the cross. Wow. Perfect. No blemish. No sin. Okay. We'll talk about that more when we get to that part of the gospel. Um, so it is beneficial. He's absolutely right. It's better that this one man got, die. Um, okay. Uh, verse 51. We didn't finish that sentence. As the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Oh, just for the Jews? No, 52. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Anybody know? Who's that? Gentiles. Remember John 10? He talks as the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd of the sheep. I've got other sheep. Talking about the Gentiles here. Look at it again. Not for that nation only. So he, does he die for the Jews? Absolutely. Are there Messianic Jews, they call them, Jewish people that have come to see Jesus as the Messiah? Absolutely. Not a lot of them, but there are. Um, I know several of them. There's one watching. I mentioned earlier, Susan is a, a Jewish person that knows that Jesus is the Messiah now um, and believes. Not for the Jewish nation only, verse 52, but also for the scattered children of God. Do you see that? Circle that phrase, because you know who that is? That's where you're mentioned in this chapter. You're one of the scattered children of God. Different nationalities, different nations, different time frame. We're almost 2,000 years after this. Here we are. Who's he dying for? The scattered children of God. Before you were saved, if someone said, you know, you're a child of God, you would think they mean that in a very um, grandiose sense that, oh, yeah, all people are God's children. And by the way, that's true in a general sense. We're all sons and daughters of Adam. But in a specific sense, he's dying for the scattered children of God. Pretty amazing thing. Um, ironic. Um, sheep from another flock, he calls it in John 10, 16. Gentiles. Um, some disagree about that, by the way. Anyway, um, verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. In Legal jargon, that means the verdict has been handed down. Wait, we, we didn't really have a trial or produce evidence or it doesn't matter. There are seven trials that are going to occur later on. They're all a formality. They've already made, it's closed minds that made their mind up ahead of time. That's how some people are today. They've already made their mind up about Jesus. You can't convince them. The Holy Spirit has to do that. From that day on, they plot to take his life. We got to figure out a way to kill this guy. Therefore, 54, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Judea is the province where uh, Jerusalem is, where their seat of power is. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Oh, he's chickening out and running away like a scared little critter. No, it's not his time. If he shows up and says, go ahead, kill me, they're going to kill him too early. It's got to be on Passover. And he rises on the third day. So he moves logically out of the area until it's his 
time. He keeps mentioning that in the Gospel of John. He withdrew to a region near the wilderness, getting out there like Oakhurst, coarse gold, wilderness, just kidding, to a village called Ephraim, which is mentioned, by the way, in the uh, Old Testament with a couple different names because this city kept changing hands. It's, uh, it's close to Samaria, by the way, Samaritan woman. Ephraim is what it's called in 2 Chronicles 13. Ophrah um, it's called in Joshua 18, which is Oprah Winfrey came from there. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, just seeing if you're awake. Um, verse 55, all these stupid jokes, they work because they keep you awake, right? When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, and if there's music playing, the music would go, because this is the one where he dies, but we don't know that yet. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. Pause. What just happened was several months just went by between those last two verses. Okay. We were a month or two away from the Passover where he's going to die. Now we're a week away, a little more than a week away. The Jews are heading up there for ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. You say, what the heck is that? Okay. If you had lived a pretty holy and pious and good life, you could show up to Passover a day ahead of time, get settled go sacrifice your lamb, worship, pray, and all that. But if you had done anything that made you ceremonially unclean, and there was a whole list of stuff, like touching a dead body, touching a dead animal, there was a whole man-made list. You had to go a week early, and there were ceremonies you did and washings to cleanse yourself so that you were now uh, okay to worship. So that's what it's talking about there. They went up from the country. Now we fast forward in time. We're right before Passion Week, they call it, um, for their ceremonial, ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. Verse 56, they kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple courts. They asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests, 57, and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Now, in our country, when you get arrested, you know, you always ask, what's, what's the charge? What did I do, officer, sir, right? There's no charge. They're just going to arrest him because they want to kill him. But that he is the talk of the town. Everybody knows um, that he raised Lazarus or they know of other miracles, or both. Keep in mind, Lazarus is a Jew. He's probably walking around and people are pointing him out. That's the guy. What guy? The guy Jesus raised from the dead. I was there. I saw it. So there's a lot of evidence for them, and yet they're wondering, is he going to show up? The reason for the question is this. Jesus is now on, and I mean this metaphorically, he's on wanted posters everywhere. I don't mean literally, like the Old West, remember all that? He's on, on the Jewish TV show, Israel's Most Wanted, okay, at this time. He's a wanted man. He's a fugitive. And so they're wondering, will a fugitive walk boldly in where he knows he's going to get nabbed? Or will he stay away? That's what they're wondering. Of course, you know the answer. He's completely unafraid. He knows he's been living for this hour. And so here it comes. Let's um, conclude chapter 11 and then um, make a few points. And then we'll just start chapter 12 if we have 
time. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Good one. Okay. What did you see in this chapter? The main things. Jesus has power over death that he gives to all believers. He proves it by his own resurrection, by raising Lazarus and two others, um, the widow of Nain's son and Jairus's daughter. Do you remember that? Um, by the way, in each case, he speaks. Little girl, get up. And they do. It's a command. Beyond his absolute power over death, you saw his beauty today, his glory, love, compassion. He cries with those who cry, right? He's moved with compassion. He's moved with ugh, angst over the horrible nature of death and sickness and everything that sin brought. Um, Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid our, as it were, our faces from here, he, from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Um, all predicted in the Old Testament. You saw tonight a preview of your own resurrection. You saw a preview of the second coming. You saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we learn besides power over disease and demons and nature, he has power over death to the point that he can impart eternal life. The connection between love, death, and the glory of God is beautiful. He allows him to die so that they will see the unbelievable glory of his resurrect, the resurrection power. They'll learn that he is the resurrection and the life. Um, yeah. Ultimate act of love, I wrote in my notes here. He so loved us that he died in our place. He is that sacrifice that Caiaphas spoke of. Um, just about out of time. Let's just introduce chapter 12. Verse 1, six days before the Passover. That's the Passover he's going to die. So this is Saturday. The Passover would be Friday. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Is he there in Jerusalem? No, he's two miles away, 1.75 miles away. Where Lazarus lived, remember Lazarus? Probably kind of has celebrity status now. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. John wants you to remember this is the same dude. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Awesome. In a sense, every dinner ought to be in Jesus's honor. Do you pray before you eat and thank God for the food? You should. Even in a restaurant? Yes, especially in a restaurant. Okay. Made you feel guilty there. A dinner given in Jesus's honor. Martha served. You say, yeah, that's her character. Always the busy one. While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Okay. Um, what we know from the other gospels is, interestingly, this dinner takes place not at Lazarus's house. It's at a guy named Simon's house, who the Bible in the other gospels calls, ready for this, Simon the leper. He's not a leper. You know how I know? Because he would have to yell unclean and everybody would leave the room. He's Simon, the former leper sitting at the table with Jesus and Lazarus, the former dead guy, right? He's clearly not a leper anymore because Jesus must have healed him. The Pharisees weren't able to heal leprosy. That's the setup. What you're going to see next week 
is the ultimate act of, of worship and love. And it's expensive for more reasons than just money. That's all I'll say for right now. Um, and you're also going to see the true character come out of Judas uh, in spades in this little story. Let's um, close with prayer and then we'll uh, say goodnight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the compassion we see of Jesus who cries with those who cry, who rejoices with those who rejoice. Thank you that death has no sting for us, God, and we don't need to fear it. And we thank you that we have been called. We heard your voice just like Lazarus. We came out of that grave of our old sinful lifestyle. You took off our grave clothes. You dressed us in your righteousness, and we're still learning and growing, God. One day when your son returns, everyone will rise. That's an awesome thing to think about, God. And we thank you for this hope. Death has no sting. And we can't wait to see you in your glory, God, and be glorified with you. But in the meantime, here we are, God, in 2021, in a dark world. We pray you'd make us little lights that would shine to the people around us and use us for your glory. That's the ultimate goal, your glory and the glory of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he was willing, you were willing for all this to occur because without it, we'd still be in the grave. We'd still be in a dark place. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Hope to see you next week on Zoom. Thank you for being here. I'm going to turn my screen off now. God bless you. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. God bless you. Thanks for being here.